back it's sunday july 8th it's time once again for the other kind radio my name's jeff i'm one of your hosts welcome to today's program the other kind hope everybody had a good week uh i watched for the first time um i was had the time and was able to watch uh world cup soccer yesterday and man oh man oh man some great games and excited to see how that's going to turn out uh, later um, once everything's said and done. We've got a packed show for you today. We're going to talk about uh, Todd's take is going to be on uh, season two of Glow. We're also going to have an update for the Fantasy Movie League. We're going to talk about the 2018 Podcast Awards, which uh, this show uh, is nominated. And we would love your support with that. Um, we're going to make an announcements regarding Twitch and our expanding broadcasts onto that network. And then we're going to get into AFI top 100, 40 through 31. And this week's a special week in the sense that, um, I've seen almost all of the movies. So, uh, I binge watched and will be prepared to talk a little more in depth uh, with Todd on some of these uh, particular shows. So I'm excited about that. Let's go ahead and see if we can find Todd. I'm going to try and tune him in here. See. I uh, think he's coming in. Oh, there he is. I'm sorry. It's really early, Jeff. <laughs> what can I do for you? Hey. <laughs> Um, I'm excited about, uh, this episode. Um, so let's go ahead and dive right in. Let's fire up that projector. There it is. It's a little quiet. It's soft for you. And let's get into Todd's take on Todd. What are we taking on today? Well, you know, the one thing that consumed my week was the release of glow season two on Netflix. We covered that in, in earlier episodes. We really broke it down and what a great show it is. It's a fictional take on the real uh, wrestling league called Glow, where all of a sudden a bunch of women in the 80s, they had a wrestling league that suddenly exploded on the scene. And this is, again, a fictional take on it. And I, I think what season two does perfectly is it takes what you already have. It really polishes the way they're doing it. And it does build on it, but it doesn't feel like it needs to do anything outlandish. It introduces, me, it introduces a couple of new characters, but it's great. And I would, I would tell anyone, go watch this. I will tell you right now, to me, the star in the making of the show is Mark Marin, who plays the director, Sam, who oversees all of it. Now, the women are all on it are fantastic. I don't want to push past the obvious thing that this is a show about women. Right. But Mark Marin. You know, if you ever listen to his podcasts, uh, I won't say the word since we try to be somewhat clean, but WTF, um, he does not profess to be an actor. Right. He should, because I think he's outstanding in the show. He, There are moments where I sit there and I think, you know, 
there's something natural about a person that gets up and does stand up like he does or or host people to discuss things he understands how to interact and that's all acting really is is how do i interact how to make this look believable that we're having a conversation about this moment he's fantastic in this he really really is the only other thing if you're going to watch it go watch both seasons there as i mentioned uh, in the past episode there is a documentary that's also on netflix called glow gorgeous ladies of wrestling which will tell you the true story and as soon as you see that you'll begin to see how they pepper in some of the truth into this and and, and come off of that but great show that's uh todd's take on glow season two available on netflix so let's go ahead and slow down that projector thank you todd Fantasy Movie League, The Other Kind Radio, week four results. Folks, I'll tell you, this hasn't been easy. This is, this is in fact, the third time we're recording it. <laughs> Joining me on the phone right now, a very, very, not only intelligent, smart man when it comes to Fantasy Movie League, but Gandhi-like patience. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your half of day that you spent with me on the phone. <laughs> Glad to be here. Jeff uh, has masterfully, uh, with the skill of a Jedi Knight, managed his theater um, into first place uh, for week four. He just topped 100 million mark. I was at 80. Uh, David, with the Everlasting Minute, came in at 72 million. And Todd came in at 65. So I know I know this is like the third time we've done it, but let's go back to when you were telling me what, what your strategy is, and maybe oh, we could touch on that. I had, uh, over the past week, uh, I'd had some, some, some stuff happen at work to where uh, it's become fairly, fairly stressful, more than, uh, more than the normal amount, and uh, needed a break, uh, needed, needed something to focus on other than, um, other than the stressors at work and uh, just in life in general. So... I was uh, kind of losing myself at 30 minutes at a time in the, uh, in the research vault and the, uh, the Fantasy Movie League webpage and also um, Box Office Pro, uh, which is where the Fantasy Movie League pulls all of the data from. So there's a lot of, uh, wow. um, lot of things that you can lose yourself in and, and just um, a lot of trends, a lot of... Uh, um, a lot of numbers, a lot of statistics that you can, uh, you can, you can get pretty deep in it, and um, it, it clearly it, it worked. Uh, how kind of you to share some of your secrets and how you are getting your information? You're putting in the work, and you're and and it shows. It shows. Yeah, it's well, it's you know, it's right there for you for you to use. You just need to, uh, you just need to kind of know what you're looking at, I guess. It, and it took me it took me a couple of weeks to kind of fine tune and and uh and realize what what resources were were out there for for us so and and the interesting thing uh the kind lister may may not may or may not know is uh the in in your in your picks for week four you were the only um uh movie manager cineplex manager that didn't use any of the jurassic park um which you know, uh, now that I kind of know to go back and research that stuff is interesting. So you can actually kind of go and, and get a better uh, educated guest um, for it. And I don't know if it's going to show me week five. I don't know if I. Oh, I can see everybody else's uh, 
And so you're <clears throat> you're looking to work the system again this week as you do not have the new uh, Ant-Man and Wasp movie in your lineup. You're going Jurassic. You're going uh, two showings of Incredibles 2 and Deadpool 2, Ocean's 8, and I keep forgetting the uh, Sicario. Sicario. Yeah. Uh, and going that route. Tell me a little bit about that. What's your thought process on that? Well, it was uh, it was basically just just what your return was going to be because I, I think off the top of my head, I think the uh, the Ant Man was something like eight hundred eight hundred movie dollars or yes. movie bucks or whatever yes. you call them. <laughs> um, and it's not going to crush. It's not going to crush Incredibles two or Jurassic World um, as far as its return. At least I don't. Right. It's not projected to. Right. Um, and then I would have to fill the you know I'd fill the rest of the rest of the screens with um with avengers or you know something something at the very bottom of the list right uh, so just looking to most importantly fill the screens and secondly um it's interesting because this is the first week that jurassic world has not been slated for a particular showing right so if you you know if you click on the if you actually click on the title it's going to show you that it, it has, you know, it's zero change over, uh, over from when it, from when it opened. Um, because it's the, it's again, it's the first time that it has been, it's been offered as a full weekend showing. So well, and roll it, the dice. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, you brought up some really good things and we've recorded this so many times. I can't remember if we talked about it or not, but, um, you said that in your research, you, you, the one strong message that you found, um, across the boards was do not leave any of your screens empty. Right. It's, it's a $2 million hit right off the top. Right. Uh, so even if you put, you know, whatever you put, uh, I'm not even looking at the actual titles, but even if you, like Avengers or some of those other, um, what is it? Hereditary. Uh, you know, even if you just fill the, fill those, you're, you're gonna, you're not going to get that $2 million hit that's per screen. Right. So, yeah. And 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 then and then I have to throw this in because you exactly did that very thing week two, where yeah. you left four screens empty. Half your theater didn't even have the people went in the room and they were just staring at the screen like, "What's this?" And you're like, "Oh, it's nothing. We're not showing nothing." No. And, and no. you st and you still won that week, handedly. Right. So right. Um, yeah, you're even more dangerous now that you've done the research and um, and have you know gained uh, some skills as far as that. Uh, real quick, let's go through the current standings. We are in week five of six, so this is a short version. I wanted to kind of just let everybody kind of get in and, and get their feet wet. Hopefully uh, the next time we do this, and we'll, we'll make plenty of announcement uh, prior, and um, maybe we can get some more people in here. Um, but uh, currently uh, you're running the Majestic. You're in first place at 40, uh, $448 million, close to 449 I mean, it's pretty darn close. Uh, I'm in second place uh, with $405 million. Um, David uh, was running the fabulous Fox. He's at uh, $396 million. At the Rialto, where Todd is managing, uh, $367 million. So um, about what I expected, but I think um, – that everybody is, you know, at least gleaning some information on on what their strategy be, can be, uh, you know, going into the next season. Um, an interesting thing that I just want to touch on real quick that you mentioned. You said uh, you used it as, as kind of a stress reliever. That's something I wouldn't have expected because my stress level always goes up <laughs> when I'm trying to figure out, figure out what movies I'm going to put on there. Um, I mean, if we do another season, you think you'll be back? You think it's it's worth doing? 
Yeah, I'm having, I'm having fun doing it. Okay. Absolutely. Because you're kicking everybody's butt, and uh, right. I just, you know. <laughs> you put me in fourth place, I may sandbag the entire thing. <laughs> right? Like Todd is. Oh, I'm Ooh. sorry. Todd's Ooh. not here to <laughs> defend himself. Well, all right. So week five's in. We've got our picks. Uh, Todd and I are still kicking around the idea of uh, what we're going to do for you should you uh, pull out the big uh, win for this. I'm sure there will be a trophy or a coffee mug or something for you. We'll figure something out. But uh, big thank you to to Jeff, who has spent uh, more than uh, time than he probably thought he was going to as we uh, work through all of our technical issues here. And uh, so thank you for joining us. Good luck this week. I'll leave the last word to you, Jeff. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on and uh, having fun doing it. All right. So that was uh, week four and current leader of the Fantasy Movie League. And I'm sorry, Todd. I'm sorry that uh, um, you weren't there to uh, defend yourself. I, that is the story of being your friend. I find out post-conversation, you know, Jeff was kicking you in the balls, and you weren't there to defend yourself, but, hey, he talked about you. Right. You know, he's doing a great – Jeff's doing a great job. Um, he's utilizing those tools, which I didn't even know because I'm an idiot um, that that even exists. But, yeah, at the top of the top of the web page, it has Research Vault, and there's all kinds of good information in there. So well, see, that's why I'm, I listen to that. I'm so ticked off at myself because I did kind of, you know, having played fantasy football on enough, I thought there's got to be some stats. There's got to be some information. Right. I didn't see that for whatever reason. I must've skimmed right past it. It, it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if it was you and I that, and nothing against the people that designed this great website, but if it were you and me, that would be a neon light. Yes. <laughs> and then if hey, you like, yes, if you didn't, right, here. right. And if you didn't win, it'd be like, Hey, have you heard about the research fault? You might look, want to look at that. Look at that. I'm on the site right now. It goes league chatter, which apparently I fall asleep when it gets to chatter because the next <laughs> one is research fault. It's like our kryptonite. It's just like, oh, to just if you put it third down, they won't go. They won't go that far. You know what I think it may be is that they call it research fault, which automatically sounds to me like wah, 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 wah. I don't want to research. <laughs> And I look over here, and here's how to play. And you go how to play, and it tells you the technical mechanics of what you have to do, not how to do it. Yes. So kudos to him for figuring that out because, as I said, I have effectively made the Rialto what the real Rialto was. It is a third-rate – it's actually a fourth-rate movie theater, according to the, the <laughs> ranking grant. Well said, and I agree, yes. I mean, he, he actually went in. Uh, and a quick update uh, with part of the week done – uh, in first place for this week, right off the bat, it's the Majestic with Jeff at 120 million. I'm in second place with 100 million. Then the Rialto in third place, woohoo, uh, with 97. But quick on your heels is uh, David with the Everlasting Minute and his theater, The Fabulous Fox. So um, obviously, we have this week and then next week, and we're done. We'll probably take a quick break, and then, like I said, we'll. Uh, ramp up our marketing of the next league and uh, maybe get some more people um in there but i i am enjoying it and uh enjoy learning a little bit about it and and uh, i think it's something we'll bring back i i i'm having fun i just don't know how to play it yet so hopefully i'll actually 
research a bit and learn how to do it before we do it again. And you've got a thousand things going on. So I, I completely understand as well. Plus, you know, I mean, I would like a kind listener to win because it, it would be <laughs> it would be a less fun uh, environment if if you just like smashed everybody and said, yeah, for yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> Come play in the fantasy movie league where we can crush every hope you have. My name's Todd. I'm from New York. <laughs> When did I suddenly become Donnie Wahlberg? I don't know. I don't know. Real quickly there. I digress. I apologize to the kind listener. Um, let's move along now because we do have a lot more to cover. Hey, Todd. Hey, what? Did you know that we are up for an award? You know, Jeff, I've kind of heard those rumblings through the grapevine. Did you know that I've shamelessly paid $10 so we're available for this award? <laughs> I know that that's the part you should edit out and never tell anybody. <laughs> never tell anybody. No, man, we're, we're, we're full transparency here at The Other Kind Radio. There is a website called, uh, and the URL is podcastawards.com, and they do have an annual podcast award show. I did register us because, uh, you know, with all the podcasts out there, you really got to... Uh, you know, it's part of marketing. It came out of the marketing budget, which is AKA Todd's money. So, you know, I didn't <laughs> care. Um, but uh, we, we are registered for it. And the way this works is you go to podcastawards.com. You have to register, um, put your email address in there. I have not, the email address I used, I have not seen a smorgasbord of spam and, you know, just junk mail. So they don't sell your information. Um, once you verify your email address, you log back in and um, can go to TV and film where the other kind radio is. And you can select us uh, if you feel necessary as a kind listener. And um, if we get enough nominations, then we'll be put on the slate where uh, they'll be voted on and maybe we can get an award. So I'm going to post a separate uh, uh, little podcast, if you will on specific instructions but the kind listener if you can grab a piece of paper or just remember podcastawards.com and go check it out and if you feel like it uh, give us a nomination there um yeah it's something you register for but i figured what the hey right what the hey you know that's going to be our calling card from now on is what the hey <laughs> what the hey it is it's very g-rated in here today it's uh i i, I don't know what's happening um, what, all I know is it's so peachy to be here with you. <laughs> um, oh, and one thing I wanted to mention is uh, obviously if you go and register um, and want to nominate us, that's great. Take uh, Feel free to, to listen to any of the other podcasts that are listed there. I've listened to a couple. Um, but, but you don't necessarily have to fill out. It's not like the Oscars where you got to fill out uh, or, or nominate every subject uh not encouraging not to do that but i'm just saying if uh, time is of the essence you can go in and just nominate a few categories and then you know call it a day all right so the 2018 podcast awards we are now available i believe nominations go through to the end of the month so uh nominate away and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll we'll get on the slate and see what happens on to a second special announcement um and I was, I was telling Todd before the podcast began, I'm like, there was two things that I wanted to mention, and I couldn't remember the other one, and it's written right here on our run sheet, so way to go me. Um, we, the Other Kind Radio, are going to start uh, simulcasting 
when Todd and I record, we're going to broadcast live on Twitch. We do have a page up. Um, it's the other kind radio. And so we'll start broadcasting live where people can uh, uh, log into their Twitch account and chat with us and ask questions and all that good stuff. So look for that to be launching in the next couple of weeks. Um, and then those those shows will be uh, saved on Twitch for people's view. And Todd and I were talking before the show, and I think when the new Fallout game comes along, we've mentioned this before, we're going to start uh, broadcasting some of our gameplay on Twitch. Todd, are you have you gotten into Twitch yet, or are you, are you familiar with it at all? I'm familiar with it that I know it's there. I look at it from time to time, but you're going to be my... Uh, you're going to be my Moses leading me to the Holy Land. <laughs> it, it's a pretty cool, uh, a pretty cool, uh, uh, you know, new means of, of watching. You know, whenever I try and explain it to people, they're like, why would I want to watch somebody else play a video game? But it's actually a pretty interesting uh, concept and being and is hugely uh, successful, um, especially for, for a couple of reasons. One, it's owned by Amazon. Two, um I started really getting interested in when the... Did you play Alien Resurrection? No, I did not. So that was a kind of a scary game that came out on the Xbox, and I didn't know if I wanted to buy it. So mm -hmm. I thought, hey, I'll watch somebody play it. Now, granted, it's live, so you pick up the game wherever they start. It's kind of hard to... Unless they... Nowadays, they'll mention, hey, on this date, I'm going to start playing this new release. And so you can sit there and watch someone play it, and then, you know... Um, for some games I've watched, I've actually bought, and other ones I've just watched and you know was satisfied with watching somebody else play it. So, um, and then currently there is a Twitch uh, uh, personality named Ninja who is pulling in close to half a million a month from Jeez. from donations and subscri subscriptions. You can sub subscribe to channels. So I mean, overall Twitch is free, but. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. So, I think it'll be an interesting thing. Us just just to do on the talk uh, talk show side. If you go into Twitch, there's uh, if you go to browse, you can actually browse by game. So if there's a specific game that you're interested in, you click on that, and it'll show all the different casters that are playing that game. One of the channels is talk shows. So if you click on that, and then when we're broadcasting live, we'll be listed in there somewhere. So I would just like to say when we start making a half a million a month. Uh, I'd like the ten dollars back out of my budget you used to pay for that award. I, just me <laughs> to pay to pay for the the uh, to pay for the opportunity to beg our listeners to go in and nominate us. If that's what you'd like to, you know, be so transparent <laughs> as to say yes for that. No, uh, uh, but you know, I'm I'm, I'm curious actually because I didn't tell you that I was going to say that. I, I feel like we should should say that, right? Well, I look. I, I've never held back on my feelings on awards given to anything like. There this. you go. Yeah. Um, I, it's, there's usually something going on behind the scenes. So look, putting on there some kind of podcast award on ours would hopefully bring in new people to listen. That's our end goal. Right. So I have no problem with being honest about that. That's, and that's why I love working with you, Todd. Cause I, I do, I think, you know, to, to say, Oh, we, you know, if we do get nominated or get on the slate or whatever to, to play the guys of, you know, Oh my goodness, we, Oh my goodness, we've been doing this for, you know, a couple of months and they really, really like us when all in reality you go and you do that. And hopefully this doesn't upset the podcast awards, but it's written all over their website. So it's not like it's super secret. And well, if anything, go vote for us because you know, Oh my godness, 
you know, <laughs> I was hoping if God is on our side, then you got to vote for us. Uh, I was hoping you weren't going to hear that. <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to take a moment here and find my my quiet place. Could you reset there for us, Jeff? I found it. Reset. Hey, you're listening to the Other Kind Radio. It's Sunday, July 8th. This is the 17th episode. I'm Jeff. He's Todd. And we are the Other Kind Radio. Uh, we're a pop culture podcast that ping pongs. We play ping pong. How does it go again? We ping pong through pop culture. I love it. I love the angry voice. We ping pong through pop culture. You, you didn't speak seriously. Of, speaking of of special dates coming up, you didn't like say your vows that way, did you? I oh, see, I did the godness, and you had to come back and go for the Achilles heel here. So, and what Jeff's talking about is that this this much mentioned trip for me to come up and see him and meet everybody that's important in his life. I had to say this morning, hey. Um, could we look at maybe get me back a little bit earlier? Cause I re- I realized the day I'm coming back is my 24th wedding anniversary and I kind of got to go to dinner. So thanks I sh- Jeff. I, I, we're, we're now even, <laughs> I got that thing. And it'll be great. You'll have uh, you'll come back, you know, maybe, maybe some, maybe some anniversaries can be, um, um, you know, the, the, the emotion of it can be ramped up cause you'll be gone for a couple of days. So, you know, you'll come back in, you'll land, You'll have your suit on. You'll say, I'll, I'll meet you at the car. And then you go and, and have dinner. Or where Do you know, can you say where you guys are going to go to dinner? McDonald's. No, 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 no. I have no idea. Um, What's your favorite kind of food? Uh, you know, if we do something like this now, what we do is we, we are very fair. We take our, our 15-year-old daughter with us just because, oh, you know, yeah. we're like, hey, you're part of this too. And um there's a great steakhouse here owned by the the Papa's restaurant. We'll probably end up going there mm. if, we, you know, if I'm guessing anywhere. Can I go? Would you yeah, be surprised absolutely. if I can? <laughs> That's you should know me well enough to know that we are not pretentious people. Right. You know, we may go to a really nice restaurant, but at the same time, I'm like, hell yeah, everybody go. Let's go but, have a good time. But just seeing the disappointment in your wife's eyes, she's like, she sees you, right? This is how it's shot. What, she sees disappointed you. that I'm with you. She just wants you. Is that it? No, 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 no. We get the close up on her eyes, and they widen when she sees you. And you kind of you're kind of dressed like um, Tom Cruise in Rain Man, where he's coming down the escalator in that gray suit with the white shirt, and you're just looking fly. And then as we, we come down, it reveals that I'm standing <laughs> standing behind you, and she's like, "Oh no." Uh, when did we become a Mel Brooks send-up of a romantic comedy? I'm working on it, man. I'm, man, I'm, that's a fun, fun <laughs> idea to explore. Right. It's Rain Man meets, uh, guess who's coming over for dinner? What? <laughs> guess who's coming over for dinner? Isn't that the name of the... the coming to dinner? Guess who, right. That's, see, if we change that one word... Then, oh my God, you're right. No royalties. Damn it. You're a genius, Jeff. <laughs> I'm a huge, huge geek hey, what, nerd. What's yeah. that over in the corner over there? Is that the weeds? Is that where we are right now? Well, I think we uh, <laughs> we are the weeds. And I even reset. So, all right. Let's pull it back in. The other kind of radio. Let's get to why we're here. Todd was uh, very kind in some communication that we had um, earlier this week because I have made a commitment to the kind listener and to Todd to bring up a notch uh, the AFI Top 100 10th Anniversary Movies of All Time as we go 40 to 31 
this past week I did go and I've seen all of the movies except for one uh, on this week's list. And it was funny because I would text Todd and I'd go, this movie, now I've got this movie. And he's like, oh, wow. So hopefully I can bring something more than just terrible romantic comedy ideas to the uh, to the table this week. I'm looking over the list here and I'm just curious, is the only one you didn't watch Snow White? Well, I've seen all of them. Okay, but um, you didn't watch it this week. No, that one that one didn't make the cut, and Sound of Music didn't make the cut. I've okay. seen both of those movies, but the one I did not see was The Treasure of Sierra Madre. Now, an interesting okay. thing, thing was I did seek both um, your input and my, my father's input as to whether I should see it, and he was like, no. And I believe you were kind of like, eh, about it too, right? Yeah, pretty much. So... You know. We'll get there. We'll get there when we talk about it. I was just kind of curious which ones sure. you had. We didn't ever discuss which you didn't see. That's right. That's right. Well, let's get it rolling, then. Let's do it. Let's start out in the 40th position, a movie that came out in 1965. The hills are alive. Well, with some type of screaming now. Um, the Sound of Music, uh, another musical We that is, you know, we're starting to break into the top 30. Uh, what are your thoughts, Todd? Okay. So this is arguably one of the most famous movie musicals of all time. 1965 Sound of Music, which tells the Von Trapp family story. A woman leaves an Austrian convent to become a governess to the children of a naval officer widower. Um, it has the impeccable Julie Andrews in it. Julie Andrews, even when she was in crap, is fantastic. Um. It's directed by Robert Wise, who also directed West Side Story. That is where I immediately go, what the crap's going on here? Why is that? Because this is 11 spaces ahead of where West Side Story ends up on this list. West Side Story is, is an impeccably made film. Now, it does have the things you can track from because it's two leads are not actually singing. They have people overdub their voices. Yet Sound of Music also has Christopher Plummer not singing. Somebody overdubs him. There are things you can knock at West Side Story like that, but you also cannot knock its construction, how beautifully shot it is, how beautifully choreographed, and, and the direction of the actors. West Side, I'm sorry, Sound of Music was really not well received when it came out. It was kind of a mixed bag. And there's a very famous film critic named Pauline Kael. Pauline Kael, if you ever want to read film criticism, Go read her. Now, what I'm going to tell you, she's going to knock a lot of movies you like. She hated Star Wars, but then she's like, it's just sloppy. It's derivative, blah, 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 blah. But she was usually pretty spot on with what her criticisms were and what her opinions were. She hated Sound of Music so much that she blasted it and promptly got fired for blasting it. <laughs> for, wow. Her, her editor said we fired her because all she did was knock mainstream cinema. Well, the Sound of Music, if you really want to break it down, it has beautifully done things because robert wise is brought in at the last minute to replace i want to say william wyler was going to direct it and he pulled out because he really had some issues that some of the people involved with it didn't like the stage show it's a very thin approach to this story that and, hmm. and it also it kind of whitewashes a bit of the things that happen now it does introduce some nazi themes which in 65 people are beginning to talk about that and put it in here in different ways so it has an ounce of bravery in its approach to it i just find it other than the sweeping opening shot that is 
so famous of Julie Andrews singing The Sound of Music, and it's a helicopter flyby that's just beautifully done. Um, a couple of other moments that are just beautifully shot, the uh, the Do Re Mi song, and why can't I think of the name of it? It may even be it. Those are beautifully done. The rest of the movie, it's just sloppy. It's saccharine. It is so obvious. It's a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical that they just don't find anything beyond the saccharine. Wow. It doesn't even belong on the list, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, having, I'm having been so hyper-focused on the movies that I hadn't seen, I really hadn't thought about this a lot. And so I, one of the interesting things that happens when we go through this list and I ask you questions like, why is this here, is generally... You know, if, if I from what I'm remembering, you know, like what I said about King Kong, I'm like, oh, it's because of the the what was that photography still action stop motion stop motion, you know, and you're like, actually did this and it did that. And, you you know, like open my eyes. I'm like, oh, OK, well, this is why it brings it deserves to be in the top 100. Um, this this placement, it, do, it does kind of make me scratch my head as well, because like you said, West Side Story, definitely a thought thought out and well shot or purposefully made artful, I should say. Right. When you watch West Side Story, you can't help but notice, hey, they're doing something here. Sound of Music, that's my question that I was going to ask you was, I mean, why? I mean, it, it's not really riveting as far as the storyline. There are some very, very catchy songs, uh, and it's, you know, obviously was pretty popular and, and holds its popularity today because it's shown right around you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas most of the time. Um, do you think it was the names behind it? Well, honestly, I think you just hit on the reason that I think it might be here is that it is so immensely popular and it became this, I still don't understand why for the longest time it was a Thanksgiving movie that yeah. they would air at that time. I, I remember seeing it on TV and, and it, as a kid, I didn't dislike it. Um, I mentioned before that my family loves musicals and we'll yeah. watch those things. We'll go to see them in, in you know live performances. I didn't dislike it as a kid. It was just then as I got older, when it got into the middle parts where the one daughter falls in love with the kid that's going to end up being a German shoulder, soldier, I was just like, this is crap. Right. And the, the more it would go on, I thought, wow, I kind of get where the criticisms are of this, the, the thinness of this. And I so again, I come back to this film survived its you know it wasn't a panning it was pretty split people either thought hey it's good or they thought it was crap right and it still went on to make a huge amount of money when it was shown in a preview um it got a standing ovation during the intermission this was still when they made oh, intermission things and so that people gave a standing ovation it speaks to an audience yeah and sometimes I think that that has to be the truth we hear of a film right it speaks to its audience it knows its audience did it win any kind of major awards or anything? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure that won uh, Best Picture. Oh, right yeah. that could that could it, be it. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, including actress, actress in a supporting role, art direction, cinematography, and costume. It won five for directing, film editing, music, sound, and Best Picture. Oh, there you go. So, so Robert Wise wins his second directing award. That it, so it has to be its popularity and it has to be the yeah. awards it got. But once again, that shows you the Academy Awards are poo-poo. <laughs> All right. Well, that closes out the 40th spot. We're now going to start in the 30s. Um, and we're going to go to a year prior, 1964, a movie by a very well-known director, number 39, Dr. Strangelove. Todd, take it away. 
1964 Stanley Kubrick film an insane general triggers a path to nuclear holocaust that a war room full of politicians and generals frantically tries to stop. This is Kubrick's very dark comedy at the onset of the nuclear age. People's fear of all kinds of things uh, nuclear was going on so much that it became the title of it, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Um, this is a pretty iconic film. There are a number of reasons why you've got Peter Sellers playing three roles in it. You've got the very deadpan delivery of things where, uh, as I mentioned, this is in a war room. It's shot in beautiful black and white. And one of the people, uh, I believe it's George C. Scott that, that throws the line out, gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Right. <laughs> gentlemen, Which there's is no fighting in here. This is the war room. Yeah. Right, which is a beautiful line. Yes. Um, this is a film that is going to alienate people because I think a lot of people, when they hear comedy, expect punchlines. And it's not about that. Sometimes it's about the absurdity. Sometimes it's about the situation. And at the end, to put Slim Pickens, the actor, riding a nuclear bomb as it descends to blow everything up and basically him waving his cowboy hat is Kubrick's way of saying we have a cavalier nature about all, all of this. So he's doing exactly what cinema should do, which is putting a couple of things together and, and trying to say something. You, This is where it alienates people. If you don't go into a film looking for the image to stick with you, and it, it's like, what did that mean? And finally you get it. It's not going to speak to you. I love this film. I haven't actually I haven't seen it in probably a good 10 years, but I do like this film a lot. It's probably one of my favorite Kubrick films. It's one of my favorite ones. Uh, I did tell you that I um, had some time and started to watch it um, <clears throat> for some reason. And, and I may have exhausted my movie watching um, uh, energy with uh, catching up with everything else. But I did find myself kind of tuning out. But mainly because I kind of knew um, I'd seen the movie before. Um, I do want to share some interesting uh, trivia with you. Okay. Um, and this is off of IMDb. But uh, one thing I kind of already knew, and I just confirmed or confirmed on the on the internet that it's written again, um, that the accuracy in which the bombers' uh, cockpit and the procedures that they use uh, for checking the code to to launch mm -hmm. were so close that uh, it got the government's attention, and really? uh, they they questioned and were concerned that Kubrick's team had somehow illegally obtained information where I believe it was, there was a picture in, um, uh, off a, a magazine, um, single fire photograph that, that appeared in a British flying magazine. Uh, so that's kind of, I'm sure Kubrick used that as a model, mm -hmm. but he also read close to 50 books about nuclear war. And I'm sure that's how he gleaned some of the procedures that are used into triple check and make sure that, you know, the codes once they're given are, are accurate. So right. I found that interesting that it kind of caught the eye that he did such a good job and he was known for his attention to detail. Um, one of the podcasts I listened to room two, three, seven, um, they constantly are bringing up that there's some inconsistencies in shots. And the argument is were you know, were they purposefully done um, or accidents? And the thing they keep coming back to is, Stanley Kubrick knew everything that was in every shot and it was in the place that he wanted to be. So how could it be, you know, a mistake? Um, 
And then the, the other uh, little piece of uh, trivia here that I like is there's that scene where they're going through their survival kits, you know, and there's like bubble gum and prophylactics and, you know, all this lipstick. And um, he says uh, the uh, pilot, when he's going through it, says, oh, boy, I'm going to I'm going to miss where did I, where did it go? It suddenly disappeared, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, here we go. Welcome to live production. Yeah, it disappeared when you wanted to be there. It says, Major Kong's comment about the survival kit was originally, a fellow could have a pretty good weekend in Dallas with all this stuff. Yeah. But it had to be overdubbed with Vegas because uh, of the assassination in Dallas. Well, which that, you know, which that did affect so much stuff because people did not know how to yeah. how to look upon Dallas. That's I'd never known that. And then, of course, uh, Peter Sellers is he, he plays what three different characters in there, three. Mm-hmm. and uh, most of his lines were uh, improvised. Oh, really? So, take that little bit of knowledge and uh, maybe go go see it again. Um, I agree with its placement. Um, I agree with your assessment as far as kind of what it it lends to and, and the message it was it was bringing. So, I, I feel comfortable where this is at. That it, it definitely belongs there. You know, you touched upon it. Kubrick's attention to detail. He was known to be one of the most difficult directors to work with simply because he knew what he wanted and he wasn't going to sell for less. Usually what you'll, you know, if you, you look into anything about film production, they're going to talk about the directors have to understand that what you want and what you get are very rarely the same thing. That's to the point. If you ever hear Spielberg talk, he, he doesn't storyboard anymore. He just goes and shoots he loves the the presentation of I don't know what I'm going to do. That was everything that Kubrick wasn't. Um, his films are notoriously behind schedule, mm-hmm. and you can if you really look at this film in that way, you can begin to see it's very detailed. It's constructed in a particular manner that you can't suddenly think, oh, they could have shifted this and this and this around. And that's who he was. And it so the film is beautifully done. It belongs exactly where it is. It is groundbreaking because it sort of opened the, the ideas that we could have a comedic approach to a devastating matter. Fantastic. 39, Dr. Strangelove, and that was brought to us by the year 1964. Heading now to the 38th spot, a movie came out in 1948. This is the movie that I uh, did not see, and that's The uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre. Take it away, Todd. All right, so this is John Huston's classic tale of greed, and it's both an adventure and a Western. So it's, it's three mismatched prospectors who rummage the hills of Tampico, Mexico for an elusive pot of gold. Once they strike it rich, suspicion takes over and destroys their lives. John Huston famously gave his own father one of his best film parts in this film. John Huston was, was an immense talent, a great director. I can't stand this film. I just, I, I, it's one of those that I kept hearing from my dad. I kept hearing from in the uh, reading in the books I would read. You've got to watch this. And it, maybe it's one of those that when I'm finally a little bit older and I watch again, I'll go, Oh, there's the film I wish I'd seen all those years ago. I just find it. I find it obvious. I find it boring. Um, the, the suspicion that's all there. It just doesn't hold enough for me. I know that this film is so revered that it belongs here according to 
that that reverence that that others have that the screenplay is beautifully constructed i've never read it as a screenplay maybe that's where i need to start is to read it and see what they're really attempting to do right i just i find it a little boring because it, it goes back to the studio system where humphrey bogart like many of the actors of that time you know whatever role they were right for they played it so it's once again we see him in a role that we've seen in a performance i should say that we've seen in Maltese Falcon that we've seen in African Queen. There's very little deviance from that portrayal, and I just didn't want to see it again. Yeah. from Again, I haven't seen it, but, I mean, it sounds to me like it was just another placement. Hey, here's Humphrey Bogart in this situation. Yeah. That's pretty much it. And and for the people that love it, you know, please tell me what I'm missing. I, I, I probably, as we've gone through this, and I've not mentioned this many times, but I'm pretty proud that I've seen all of these, except I think one or two so far, are the only ones I've not seen. I'm, but I'm not telling you I don't that I get every one of these films. So if you're yeah. out there, tweet me and tell me what I need to be looking for because I want to like this film. I like John Huston. I respect John Huston. Help me. But at the same time, you get, yeah, you got to be honest. I mean, there there are things that. Uh, that you communicated there very well. And yeah, Todd at the other kind radio.com. If somebody's like, you know, got the original poster and maybe one of the pieces of gold and they're in their, in a box in their room and, and they named their kid, their first kid treasure and their second kid, Sierra Madre. And then the, <laughs> the, the fourth kid was of the, then, you know, Hey, let us know. Cause uh, that's a good discussion to have. So it uh, comes close to being one of my favorite beers, which is Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. So I feel like I have a kindred spirit somewhere in there, but you know, and I know I'm reaching. <laughs> and we're back in the weeds. Uh, that'll close out 38, 1948's The Treasure of Sierra Madre. Moving in, uh, going back two years to 1946, it's the 37th, 37th, 37th movie, The Best Years of Our Lives. This is the first movie um that I watched and I'll tell you I'll tell you this Todd you know when I started to make sure I was going to when I started to make sure when I decided to watch these films I'll tell you I went through and I looked through the 10 we're going to go through today mm-hmm. and I was like nope don't want to see that definitely don't want to see that and then I said well you know let's watch it first we you know and it was it was it was a really good movie I'll let you do the uh the usual uh, rundown there, but yeah, I can't wait to discuss this one with you. Go ahead. This is directed by William Wyler, and it's released immediately after World War II. It tells the story of three men returning from the war, and it was the right film at the right time. It mirrored their experiences. It it opened the door to conversations to the ideas of traumatic injury, to post-traumatic stress syndromes, before we talked about things like that. So... This film to me is is dated in its melodrama, but it's at the same time a vastly important film for what it did in those conversations I already mentioned. You don't, in my opinion, end up having films like Platoon, Saving Private Ryan, etc., Apocalypse Now. You don't have those kind of things without this one coming first. Now, there's, there's an interesting bit that leads to this. So William Wyler uh, is a great director with a storied career, uh, that didn't really, I don't want to say that um, it had weight to it. He was a great director. He They went to him for things like Wuthering Heights. He made Jezebel, which was that studio's answer to Gone with the Wind. But he was hired along with five other, other directors, John Ford, 
John Houston, Frank Capra, and George Stevens, <clears throat> excuse me, to go and shoot footage after World War II of many of the concentration camps and things that they saw in the theater of war. This is detailed in an amazing documentary that's on Netflix called Five Came Back. It vastly changed all of those men, perhaps Weiler and Capra most. They they went there and the things that they saw, and when I say that, I don't mean, it, let me say, let me revise that. It didn't change them as men the most. It changed their perspective on filmmaking the most. George Stevens greatly affected, but you already had John Ford and John Houston who were trying to be directors who had commentaries about life to an extent. But these guys went, they shot this footage. And when you see it, you will have seen some of this footage and never known it's directed by these directors. They, they saw things that just haunted them. And so William Wyler wanted to tell this and they began developing this. So he went so far as that he saw a documentary with a man named Harold Russell who had lost both arms in the war. And he was taken with the fact that he now had uh, metal prosthetics at that time. They were really the, 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 the typical prosthetic you saw that had hooks and they, they kind of open and close like fingers. He was so taken with that. He, this man could control them so effortlessly. He cast him in this role. Harold Russell went on to get a special Academy award. Um, and then promptly basically quit because William Wyler went to him and said, listen, I just want to be very honest with you. There's not a lot of roles out there for men with no hands. This guy went on to do massive work to change a lot of things. There is a President's Committee Award on the Employment of People with Disabilities that's called the Harold Russell Medal. This film did so much to basically change our perception about what we think of the people who go off to war that when we talk about its ranking, I'm surprised it's not a little bit higher. But we're also getting into this realm where, again, we're in the 30s. Yeah. You start looking at the significance and it's really hard to start going, wow, I'm shocked it's not here. This film 100% belongs on this list within this top discussion of the, at least the top 50 films uh, made in America. Uh, I agree. Uh, very well said. Um, again, it was my least favorite movie going into it because, again, I didn't know a whole lot about it. I did read about it. I actually watched it on uh, YouTube. It's, you know, just mm. listed on there. And, yes, you're right. There, it's a little melodramatic. It is a little campy in some parts. But, man, oh, man, oh, man, um, from the get-go. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a quick question just to see if this if this rings true or not. But... I'm, I'm guessing, you know, this is right after the war and a lot of let me let me ask make sure I ask it a question. Did a lot of the movies that featured or were about the war, did most of them end with we're going home, boys? And then, you know, Finn and credits. So, every, you know, did most of the mo movies about war feature being in war? And then, you know, the end of the movie was, of course, you know, winning or, or getting to go home. Yeah, I mean, it was usually the triumphant thing of the guy seeing his girl. Right. Uh, but these guys, this was the onset of them. Right. Really much darker stories. And that's kind of where, that's what I'm leading into. I applaud the filmmakers, the writers, the visionaries that decided to do this because it kind of picks up at the end of those other movies and says, okay, now you get to go home. And it really, for, for, for being made in, in 1946, it holds so much true about um, PTSD, 
you know, your home, what do you do? And there is that, you know, after, you know, any type of huge event, there is that period of time where some experience the period of time where things kind of are a letdown or you're kind of faced with the actual blandness of the moment that you're in because, you know, you've been used to dealing with something for so long. Now it's just kind of everyday life. They tackle alcoholism uh, really quick. Um, PTSD, um, uh, philandering and people cheating that were maybe were married and the husband was gone, uh, self-worth, um, and even with coming home a hero, but maybe on the inside, not feeling it so much, um, and how to deal with that, you know, Mm -hmm. as far as the notoriety that it gets, um, the, Actor that didn't have hands uh, t- did a fantastic job. And then one scene in particular, and I don't want to really get into the politics and everything, but one scene in particular really echoed kind of a lot of what you may be uh, seeing these days on either side. But it's a it's an argument um, that the one of the vets gets into at the local drugstore where you, where you used to be able to get you know, soda fountain and all that good stuff. In fact, I did notice not to take away from the scene, but, um, the guy comes in and he sits down and the guy's like, you know, what do you have? And he goes, I'll have a sandwich. And the guy finishes making these Sundays and gives them to the kids. And then he goes and he reaches underneath the counter and then just pulls out this sandwich. Um, which I guess they might've done, right. They might've had some, some pre pre made. Yeah, yeah, but I would be like, you know, how long has that been sitting there? Was that somebody else's he just took and right. put it underneath the counter? Exactly. Um, but they get into a pretty hard discussion about, um, and I'm sure it was some of what the Vietnam uh, vets went through where they get home and there are those people that are, you know, were against or believe that a lot of what was reported or told concerning the war was a lie or wrong and don't have the um, warm feeling towards the veterans coming home that maybe all the people that most of the people do Um, it's a tense scene and uh, really uh, you know again this is pre-vietnam that wasn't like they they experienced vietnam and then wrote this this is uh, based off of what what happened after World War II, but but wow, eerily echoes um, you know future wars and what vets have faced in coming home. So um, you know when you write a story and you write it true um, and it's still relevant today, then absolutely it deserves to be where it's at. And I agree with you, if not higher. Uh, for those of you who um, may be questioning up whether or not seeing this movie. I would tell you to. Um, it uh, it's it's very good and uh, made me even more aware and uh, honored by those that go and and serve. You know, it's yeah. it's a it's it's a very very uh, good movie. And again, it it does get a little campy and it is a little melodramatic in parts, but the core of it uh, is something that that uh, still rings true today. So yeah, I, I think that you have to look at the when this came out again this is post world war ii um the film that started this whole idea of let's break this down citizen kane is only five years old at this point it's it it's changed to cinema is there but it's not completely gotten a hold of everything however jeff 
you touched on something that, that beautifully illustrates this, that films to this point, really Hollywood was a propaganda machine during World War II. Right. It was putting out things and it was it, it was needed. It was needed. It was yeah. Our, yeah. We're sending these boys. Yeah. To a lot of them to go die and they needed the feeling that there there was hope you know and so just like much of the nation they banded together and hollywood's doing this well the war's over now and this director is haunted by this and yeah. finds a, a i'm pretty sure it's adapted from a novel he finds a novel and and they work from it and they they tell this story so yeah it's going to be melodramatic but really important i think if you go in and just simply tell yourself yeah this is dated but really good and you touched on something there, and, and we'll we'll move along. But uh, I'm I just kind of had my first aha mo- moment. I want to make sure I heard you correctly. Did you say that this movie came out five years after um, Citizen, Kane. Citizen Kane? Yep. So obviously, without Citizen Kane, this movie may have not been made. I think that what Citizen Kane is going to do at this time, you know, there are advancements in film technology their advancements in the language of cinema that Kane changes and and not having seen this film in a long time I'm not going to speak to that okay I think that what it allowed excuse me what it allowed that the filmmakers here to do is to understand we can tell tell things that don't have to be pretty that's where I was headed that's what so, I meant. Not not I, so I much think the it definitely has an influence there. Yeah, not so much the technical aspect of it, but well, I mean, if that film was able to kind of dig up and tell some 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 truths, some ugly truths, if you will, then then and, and you're right. I shouldn't speak in absolutes. I'm not saying there's no way this movie, but it could definitely encouraged um, a more realistic approach about that. I mean, because what yeah. a subject. Because like you said, this is back in like you know. Every household and white picket fence and and this, I'm sure, especially for its day, shocked a lot of people. Well, you know, and I, I was just reading through the actual AFI's list on this that it was incredibly well received. It won many critics awards. It won the best picture. So the reverence for it was across the board. Good. Uh, I'm sure, though, that it made people uncomfortable. But the thing about something like this is, is that we often need art to make us understand that what we have in the back of our minds is okay. Yes. You know, we need to talk about it. We need to get it out. How many times has art been there that started a new conversation that got people to acknowledge something that's there that they wouldn't want to talk about. And I think that's what this film was. Right. Fantastic. Well said. And, and, um, you know, I am glad I watched it. So, uh, that rounds it out for 1946 is the best years of our lives. Uh, coming in at 37. Um, we'll move on now. We'll, we'll uh, jump in the AV time machine, have up to 1957. Uh, coming in the 36th spot, the bridge on the River Kwai. Todd. Okay. 1957's Bridge on the River Kwai, directed by David Lean, the fantastic English director that I will just do a side note and tell you that is one of Steven Spielberg's favorite directors of all time. This is the story that, okay, let's see. I'm, I'm trying to read the, the best one to tell the story. <laughs> All right, this is what it says. After settling his differences with the Japanese POW camp commander, a British colonel cooperates to oversee his men's construction of a railway bridge for their captors while obvious, uh, while the obvious plan is to have the allies to destroy it. 
It stars Alec Guinness, which, you know, it's, it's funny as Jeff was watching these and, and, and Jeff, I'm, I'm honestly proud of you for watching so many films. I know I told you that, but thanks. It's funny that, you know, you mentioned how you had a little bit of tired head as you watched one of those films earlier. Now I forget which one you said you had then. Uh, um, it was, it was, uh, Maltese Falcon. Um, and after that I tried to watch Dr. Strangelove, but go ahead. Yeah. So I, as Jeff's texting me out there, I, I kind of worried because David Lean, David Lean would go on to direct Lawrence of Arabia, um, Dr. Shivago. He had a lot of great Charles Dickens movies before that. And he loved working with Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness is in a number of his films. Um, I worried about you watching Bridge on River Kwai because I thought, you know, David Lean is luxurious in what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, he his camera lens is beautifully open and what i mean by that is he loves vistas he loves leaving things to play to the lens is what they call it just to let the lens be there and capture the moment um this is a iconic film um that stars as jeff tweeted to or texted to me obi-wan kenobi <laughs> yeah this is the first thing i when i saw uh, I, did, I didn't know I, that's how much of a film noob i am I, i'm just like i heard him talk and i'm like oh my god it's only one Kenobi. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's so funny because whenever that's how my dad got me to watch it, I saw this after I saw Star Wars and he yeah. said, hey, Alec Guinness was a great actor before Star Wars, too. So here are some of his films. And I saw Lawrence of Arabia. I saw this. Um, and then just dad, I, I, I believe, said to you, it has a lot of great whistling. Yes. Which I, that is part of it. And I've got the I, I've got the spoiler story coming up for you. But, yeah, um, continue. Basically, what I want to say this: it's it's a slow burn film that, to me, burns perfectly. I know a lot of people. This is a filmmaking language that is very different than what they're used to. We expect high action. This is more about high tension and how you persevere. I yeah. think that in its own ways, that this is a very important war film as well. That doesn't sh- that shows that basically POWs. It, to me, it opens the door for the conversation we'll have about POWs later, simply because we didn't talk about POWs. We want to talk about post-war again. You know, it was, yeah. you know, they're still over there. We're trying to get them back. And they, this conversation of what a POW does and that, that their life was not easy, this film at least begins that conversation. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed the movie. I, okay. I, this one, this one was good. Um, uh, you know, I and I made sure if if you know because during the day I've got other commitments and work and stuff that if I had it on in the background that I made sure I went back and and caught you know and watched the film. Um, I was pretty excited to see Obi Wan Kenobi. What a, what a great actor! Um, yes. uh, again, beautifully depicted. Po, I shouldn't say beautifully predicted. Uh, predicted. Um, now I can't talk. Beautifully <laughs> depicted. POW, and I don't mean that POW stuff is beautiful, but in a way it was shot and 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 brought in and everything. It really lent itself to the story. Um, but my notes that I have on here, first of first of all, um, the ending was really really quick. I mean, you talk about now, you talk about a slow burn. Mm-hmm. It's a slow burn, and then the end. I mean, it's it, it pretty much felt like it was summed up in like thirty seconds, and then final shot and pan back and credits. <laughs> so I mean, it was, yeah, I was just like, yeah. "Oh my lord, yeah, I, okay, all right, thanks for coming." Um, 
like juicy fruit gum, you know, growing up. Mm-hmm. Juicy fruit was not juicy fruit. What was the zebra one? Um, was that not juicy? Fr- no, juicy fruit was just the yellow. Oh, I know what you're talking about, though. Maybe the kind listener can help us out with that. But it was zebra stripes or whatever. But it was that gum that you'd put in your mouth, and it, literally after like two minutes, it the flavor was gone. Mm-hmm. Um, other couple things that I noticed um, was at the point in the movie where they're going back to get the bridge. Um, they have women travelers with them um that carry their supplies i'm not familiar with the culture or what was actually true about that time but the filmmakers made it very obvious that these women were um being ogled at and ogling back with these soldiers Mm -hmm. um which for a mission that that required urgency and preparedness and focus I thought was kind of weird. And I don't know, maybe that 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 was something that they were kind of having fun with. <laughs> but there's yeah. a great scene where they can't go the way they're supposed to go. So they're like, we got to go this other way. We got to go through jungle. And there's a lot of scenes of them chopping jungle. A little too much. But, you know, I understand. They had to drive home the point. So they have a scene where everybody's around and it's kind of a, a pump up moment. Rocky, you know, okay, we got to we got to go. We got to get the stuff. We got to do it. And we're going to make it. And it's a straight cut to um, a river with some pools of water and everybody's sunbathing and and the men and women are soaping each other up. And I kind of giggled because they're like, you know, for it to be a sense of urgency and then cut to that shot. I was like, hmm, they, they I mean, I guess they're bathing quickly, but <laughs> right. I mean, you li- literally had, you know, some of the women like, you know, towels laid out or whatever, and they were sunbathing. Um, and even at the end, uh, after everything happens now, you know, there's still that awkwardness of, of the women and, and the remaining, uh, survivors. So, um, I don't know if I would designate that a distractor, but it definitely was something that kind of pinged me when, uh, when I saw it, um, listening to you talk about it, I, I haven't seen this film probably in 10 plus years. I, I need to go back and watch it again. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to say was, <clears throat> you know, as as uh, I try not to bug Todd a lot with with needless t- uh, text messages, but um, you know, I like to let him know, hey, this is you know what I'm doing. I'm watching this, preparing for the show, and everything. And so I sent one to my father, and I'm like, hey, I'm you know I'm watching uh, Bridge Over River Kwai and everything. And my dad texts back, you know, yeah, not one of my favorites. A bit long in places. Seems a lot. Uh, to go through to see the bridge blow up. Well, at this point in the movie, and not knowing about the movie, I did not know that they were going to blow up the bridge. <laughs> and my father defends this with like, well, how can you not blow up the bridge? I mean, that's you build it and you blow it up. And, and you know, in all fairness to him, I understand. And, and, and it was literally two or three minutes after I got the text that they actually brought up that, min- that, that, uh, that mission in the movie that they were going to go do that. Right. But I thought it funny that at this day and age, um, not knowing anything about the movie or ever seen it before, uh, I still get a spoiler from, from my dad. So um, that was kind of fun. And, and uh, I will I will curb my, my texting habits if it's something I haven't seen before. Yeah, you know, that's, that's something you learn is that 
you get excited. Hey, I'm watching this, but my my dad, the great film lover he is, is even, you know, what he loves is oh, let me tell you about this moment. I'm like, oh, stop, <laughs> stop talking. So yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe dads are just you know we got to stay away from them until I've seen the seen the uh, right. seen the film. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I I liked it. I I think it you know should be where it's at. Um. Definitely, like you said, beautifully shot and addressed some some key issues there. So. Um, I time well spent on uh, on watching that movie. I, I will say that I'm I'm more excited to get to Lawrence of Arabia, and it is on this list. Um, that's to me where David Lean David Lean has a number of pl- uh, films. Uh, Doctor Zhivago has a lovely sequence that if you ever go to film school, they literally will break it down for you. And and I'll simply say what it is is that Zhivago uh, is watching a band march through a insurrection. And he's and what David Lean says is, you know, he's a great director who doesn't want to show you the violence, but he wants you to understand the violence. So Omar Sharif is Chivago and he lets the camera linger on him and his face cuts, his face swings back and forth. And we see little cuts of things. And all of a sudden he his eyes open wide and all we see is the bass drum that somebody was carrying earlier roll away. And it implies that that person's dead. Yeah. David Lean was that kind of director, and when you watch it, you can begin to see how he influenced Spielberg, who loves those Spielberg reaction shots. And, you know, Bridge on River Kwai is a fantastic movie, but when we get to Lawrence of Arabia, you may have to give me a whole episode to talk about Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, fantastic. Maybe we'll do that. Um, One thing real quick, you just triggered a memory. My dad and I were trying to figure out, what was the the desert movie that came out that had Dustin, Dustin Hoffman in it that flopped hugely? Ishtar. Ishtar, because we thought maybe it was Lawrence. We knew it wasn't Lawrence of Arabia, but we couldn't think of it. So there you go, Pop. Uh, just for you, Ishtar. Boy, that was, I haven't seen it, but I, I remember it was pretty much, it was kind of like Dune, where there was just public outcry about how awful it was. I saw somebody not too long ago saying that was one of the most unfairly maligned films, and this was a oh. decent critic. Go back and watch it. No. <laughs> I, I'm not. I hated it the first time. I'm not going to give it a chance the second time. All right. 1957 brought us the bridge on the River Kwai, which gave us the 36th spot on the AFI's top 100 10th anniversary list of films of all time. You're listening to the Other Kind Radio. I'm Jeff. He's Todd, and uh, we appreciate you hanging with us. We're going to keep going here as we uh, are going to go 20 years further. Um, in the AV time machine, we're going to land at 1977 for the 35th spot. 30s, 30s are hard for me to say. 35th spot, Annie Hall. All right, the the winner of the best picture in 1977. I throw that out right away because this is the film that beats Star Wars for the Academy Awards Best Picture. It is writer and director Woody Allen's tale of a neurotic New York comedian, Ali Singer, who falls in love with a ditzy Annie Hall. You know, there are a lot of things we can describe in this. There are a lot of things that I can throw out, but what I want to say right away, because the whole idea of this breaking it down is why is this on the list? Right. This film in 1977 changed at least the modern approach to romantic comedies. Um, I told Jeff when he watched it, I said, you want to see its effect, watch it, and then watch When Harry Met Sally. When Harry Met Sally is a is like the light beer version of Annie Hall. Right. It It is almost note for note with, you know, the, the neurosis of the main character to the, she's not quite as much of a ditz, but she's offbeat. So this whole idea of interactions and what it can mean 
a really this is a landmark film for what it did for the genre and i've said before that i think romantic comedies is a very unfairly maligned genre of films if you do it well like annie hall does you deserve to be in the conversation i think it's a hilarious film um it's a sweet film and it does some unconventional things which i saw in your notes jeff that you caught those two. Why don't you talk about it, uh, if you know where I'm leading you? Yeah, absolutely. And and one of them, I'll, I'll do this. I'll do the first one. I'll do the first one first, and then I'll do the second one. You know, because that's okay. the way numbers work. I guess. Good job. Good note, Jeff. <laughs> way to go there. Okay, this is professional broadcasting here. Um, so the first thing I noticed too was um, um, now I'm going to forget her name. The main actress. Diane Keaton. Diane Keaton. Um, the fashion that she wore yep. then was also uh, huge. It was uh, a point in time where I believe uh, women were getting out of dresses and wearing suit pants, and she was wearing a tie. And and it, I mean, she's dressed in a very feminine version of a masculine approach to clothing. And and hats off. I, I did spend some time in the fashion industry. Um, and know a little bit about it just a wee bit enough to be dangerous and every time she took the screen in a new outfit it was it was noted it fitted and it, it fitted it fit and worked um so kudos to to the vision on that i and i enjoyed that portion of it i know it's probably a little weird to have me going like yeah i really dug the way she was uh wore the clothes but um, I think for those kind listeners that are familiar or, or dabble in that industry, um, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, it was not overstated. It wasn't the the green dress and uh, gone with the wind, but it fit and it fit her character. And you could almost kind of tell, and she's such a great actress anyway, mm-hmm. um, what the scene was going to be about. Maybe some of the things that were going to happen based on how they had put her outfit together. And I might be reading a little more more than I should into it, but it's definitely what I took away. I don't think you are, you know, that, that, as you alluded to, became a fashion sensation that people wanted the Annie Hall look. Yeah. It was so iconic to that film that you're right. There, there are moments where she shows up and, and I believe uh, in one, she has a tennis dress or something like that, that even with, yeah. you know, there, there, there's an approach to that that's even unique. And it's, it's so smart to just give her that because it says, in her character, it says that her view, even though she's ditzy, she has a view that's different from his. Right. And that's a challenge to him. Um, Woody Allen has famously in the films, especially that he premieres in, allowed his neurosis to run rampant. Yeah. I think there's a sweetness to his neurosis in this one that that speaks to all of us. I, you know, I, and I know the next place that you're going with the unconventional approach to things, and it is my favorite moment in the movie. So please. Absolutely. So before we drive into this, um, I'm one of the things I want to hear from you as we open this discussion is how many times this has been done before. And what I'm talking about in, in movie speak is called breaking the fourth wall. And it happens in the movie when um, the characters are standing in line uh, I think it happens a little earlier, but this is the one that really s- struck me because he, he not only breaks the fourth wall, but he does another thing that's really clever, which is they're, they're having a discussion or they're trying to have a, the main characters are trying to have a discussion. But Woody Allen is distracted by the person that is behind them. And this guy's having a real 
oh, let's let's use our vocabulary, Jeff. Uh, a real artsy fartsy kind of discussion with the person that he's in line with, and he's making all kinds of opinions, and you know, it, it's hard for me not to talk about it without using like this kind of voice because like, he was like, "This writer is just so blah 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 blah." He's being very pseudo cerebral. There you go. See, we can we can tell here who's got the real brains. Well said. So, Woody Allen uh, pauses, takes a beat, looks into the camera makes a comment the person about the person behind him that person hears his comment then approaches and so we're both getting now a two shot of alan and this guy that's being all artsy fartsy both breaking the fourth wall and alan making the point well you don't know what you're talking about he the guy's critiquing some type of writer or something and and woody allen says obviously you don't know what you're talking about because you don't know that person and the guy fires back with some kind of witty repartee. And Woody Allen then walks across the lobby and he says, well, I happen to have this writer here right now. And he pulls the writer out from behind a poster <laughs> and then they have a discussion. So it goes from a very basic standing in line waiting to watch a movie to this whole thing that flips it on its head. Now, I'll turn it over to you, Todd, but I, I thought it was masterfully done. It's I, you know, I don't know, Jeff, about breaking the fourth wall, how often it had been done, but it is done so beautifully in this yeah. that I don't care about any of the ones before. Because now we look at and you go see Deadpool, you see mm -hmm. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you see these films where I, the actor, the star is going to acknowledge that we are an audience watching them. It was so unique. I remember as a kid seeing this and going, what the hell is this? Yeah. And giggling silly, just going with it. It's so beautifully done, and it plays once again to his neurosis that he would, of course, have the writer there that yeah. he could pull in to win the argument. Because in his head, he wants the guy to shut up and prove right. that he is superiorly you know, intellectual to this individual, and what better way to do it? And who hasn't had fantasies of like that You know, when you're either right. online or something like that? And then, yes, to actually be able to present him. Like if somebody was bashing uh, Spielberg's movie, Jaws, and you were able to somehow transport Spielberg there and have him defend it, I mean, how cool yeah. would that be? It's awesome. You know, and what it also does, we have to consider what moments in film like this do is they, they set a language for the rest of the film. We don't know that that won't ever happen again. Right. We don't know what we're now watching because now we're equal participants in it. Yes, yes. And so it's a very, very important idea. And when it works, it works beautifully. And in this one, I I, I would venture a guess, in, in my opinion, that this may be the best use of this. And there have been great examples, but it is so spot perfect. It's a, a brilliant move and a, a memory that uh, will be locked in because this is another movie I had not seen. And I'm very glad that I got to see it. Makes me want to touch on something real quick uh, that he also did, which I don't know had been done that often before. Um, there is a scene when they are out. Uh, we, we are at Annie Hall's apartment. We are on her balcony. Um, they are drinking wine, which in some shots has ice in it, and some shots it doesn't. I noticed Oops. that. Um, but they do the bit where they are having a conversation but the closed captioning, if you will, um, is saying something completely different. So she's saying about her friend that's a painter, and you're reading, oh, my God, this guy is so shallow. What am I, how do I get him out of my apartment? And it's the, the right. contrasting uh, 
you know, lines that are spoken to what you're reading on the screen. And I, I thought that was also memorable. And I know I've seen it in other movies, but I'm wondering if that if this is the first uh, real big instance of it. I'm almost positive it is. And, you know, when you refer to the closed captioning, the closed captioning comes up for that scene. It's not been there before. And it's right. like we're seeing their inner thoughts as they're speaking. Right. And you're right. We have seen derivative versions of that since. But, you know, people that I know Woody Allen has a lot of horrible things in his closet. Yes. Um, you know, I, I don't want to push them aside. I, I one thing I, th I want to say though for Woody is that a lot of times people are like, "Ah, oh, he's funny. Is he really a great filmmaker?" Yeah, Woody Allen's actually a pretty stinking good filmmaker. Um, yes, he's had really crappy films, but a lot of there are a lot of directors out there that are gonna, yeah. you know, we're gonna get to Coppola in a minute. Coppola's had the greatest of great and kind of meh. Yeah, Woody Allen's that way too. When you find a gem like this, though, my God, it's a great movie. It's it's a good movie. <laughs> Excuse me, and and you make a good point. Yeah, we, we folks, we we here at, at the other kind radio, we're just here talking about film, and and uh, we are aware of other in in the industry and and what's happened recently politically that that, that there are eyes and and stories that are, are being brought to told, and we're in no way trying to um, take away from that. But we're just we're the other kind radio. We're just we're just here to talk about film. So well touched on, Todd, and and um, um, appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, to close it out, I do, I do want to mention um, some aha moments for me, one of which was uh, there's a scene where there's a gentleman uh, who is very uh, well-dressed and very sharp-looking, and he utters one line, and uh, I think it's the line is, what is but what is my motivation? Uh, and that's by Jeff Goldblum, a very, very young Jeff Goldblum. Right. And I was, I was like, oh, you know, literally out loud said, oh, Jeff Goldblum. Um there's also a, a very funny and creepy scene with a very young Christopher Walken. I guess I should quit saying quit, uh, very young because it is 1977. But um, those are the words that came into to my very spacious and empty head. Um, and then we also get to see some wonderful scenes with Shelley Duvall. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that uh, at least for Jeff Goldblum, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was kind of early in his career but how great to have those future stars uh, represent in this movie. Absolutely. It, I, I tell people all the time to watch it. The one person I can't get to watch is my wife. She just has decided that it didn't deserve to beat Star Wars and she'll never watch it. And I'm like, oh, you've got to get past awards. So, <laughs> All right, so that closes out 1977's 35th spot, Annie Hall. Good movie. Go check it out. Now we uh, jump in the AV time machine. We're heading back. And I can't wait to hear Todd's thoughts and why it's here. Um, but it would be 1937's uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves hitting the spot at 34. Todd, talk to me about this film. So, you know, we often talk about that the podcast goes long, and this is where I'm going to save time for us. I don't have a lot to say about Snow White and Seven Dwarves except that it belongs exactly where it is because this is their first feature-length film. And it's executed so beautifully. Now, if you go back and oh, watch it. I didn't know it was the first. Huh. Yeah, it's, oh, okay. it's their first. Um, if you go back and watch it, it is a very quickly told story. I am trying to see. It, it, it runs at basically 83 minutes. Um, it's considered that a feature film at least needs to be 90 minutes. So it's, it's shorter than what is considered to be the right length. Right. And it feels quick. 
but you go and watch this and it is luxuriously drawn by hand. This is way before we ever had the idea that computers could take over or that you could do the uh, very boring one staple background and simply animate characters on top of it. Now they, they will have backdrop sets and things like that, but everything is drawn by hand and it is gorgeous. Other than that, you know, it, it, it belongs here. It began the, the cinematic idea of, of having animated features. That's why it's here. Boom. I'm with you. I'm on the same page and agree. I think uh, I, that's interesting because I think with what way the movies are done now and computers and everything, I completely overlook that. That's how much of, much of an idiot I am. Yes, of course. That was all hand-drawn. Uh, it is gorgeous and and beautifully drawn and uh, the first of its kind. I did not know it was the first. So uh, yeah. I, I stand in the square labeled corrected. So um, how about you actually know what you're standing in the square labeled informed informed. Right. Right. Not as dumb as before. <laughs> That's a lot of words for a square. Okay, so uh, yes, we'll keep moving on because we got three left, and these are going to take a little bit to talk about. So, uh, kind listener, um, uh, we talked about intermissions earlier. You can hit pause and come back, and we'll still be here. You can maybe grab a snack, maybe a. Uh, ooh, did you know that Pringles came out with uh, dill pickle flavored chips? I can't wait to try those. Maybe go to the store and grab some of those and tell me what you think. Uh, and we. Did we get paid for dill pickle Pringle chips sponsorship? I'm just I got my I got my check. Back. I got my check. That's how I bought this gold chair. What are you talking about? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's keep going. Nineteen seventy five in the thirty third spot. Oh, such a great movie. Yes. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. Talk to me. All right, so this is 1975's Milos Forman directed uh, adaptation of One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Tells the story of a criminal who pleads insanity after getting in trouble again and is uh, put into a mental institution. He rebels against the oppressive nurse and rallies, rallies up the scared patients. This film probably is, a for me, one of the most significant landmarks that I had seen because you and I've shared this before. Both of our fathers are psychologists. Mm -hmm. Dad being a, a movie fanatic already took me to see a number of films. And so I would have been probably eight or nine, depending on when in 75, this came out, arguably too young to see this film. Um, my dad took me anyway with a bunch of his psychologist buddies. And I remember being riveted by it, but especially when you get to the end, when things get really tense, mm -hmm. I was upset by it. And it, this was the one of the beginnings, if not the beginning of when my dad would take me to see things that were pushing me. Yeah. And we talked about it and we, t it's where I learned about mental illness was because of this film. To me, this, it's not my favorite Jack Nicholson performance, but it's the, uh, I'd have to look at the years, but it's one of the last true performances of his. And I say that because I think that after he made the shining, he became Jack Nicholson yeah. and every performance after that is the same thing. This is nuanced. It's there. You see the manicness that you see in many of his, uh, his great portrayals, but it is perfect. And, and part of it, part of the perfect nature is that he has the perfect foible and that's Louise Fletcher playing Nurse Ratchet. Mm -hmm. 
they're they're dynamic together and 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 i should note here this is one of the films that won the top five director writer actor actress best picture their performances together create this sense of what we believe is going to happen so when our beliefs and our expectations are twisted just a bit and the final shots of the film are beautiful and haunting you just look at what it's one of those things that i talk about before with film whenever film does something to you and it distracts you so that it can do something something different yeah that's to me how this film pays off and i'm not it's not a twist but it's if you're if someone stops this film halfway through and you think where's this film going right you don't get that but you get something that's beautiful I, it's probably one of my favorite films of all time. I will never, ever, ever, ever forget the experience of seeing it with my father. Um, I often think back to that night uh, as one of the sweetest moments of my childhood. So Milos Foreman, I believe he just left this earth. You know, if I can send out the telepathic waves to thank him. Yeah. I love this movie. It so belongs here. It is so dynamic and what it did for the the telling of stories from that point forward. Very well said. I, I know I keep repeating myself, but you, you do such a great job of, of pulling that together because that's exactly it. Uh, it's a very touching movie. Uh, I actually was thinking right as you were saying, it's Jack before Jack. Mm-hmm. And it's the right amount of Jack because it lends itself so well to the other events because I think if we had had Jack after, you know, he became more of a present on screen. Yeah. Bigger Jack Mm -hmm. that it would have distracted from some of the other great performances and moments in the movie. Uh, A young Danny DeVito is in the film. There's it's a who's who. If you go through and look at the credits, um, wonderful, wonderful movie. And, uh, uh, the end always gets me. I, I, I was all prepared for it and, uh, I had my game face on and, uh, it still got me. So, uh, for those kind listeners that may not know this movie or haven't seen it, please do. Cause it is, it, um, while it evokes some emotion, um, it leaves you, uh, as Todd so well put with a new kind of perspective, uh, if you let it get in and it's definitely worth, uh, the time. Uh, to go and, and kind of escape into that world for a while. I, I I throw out that oftentimes, and Jeff, I don't know if you experienced this, but, you know, being the son of a psychologist, occasionally people would be, I wouldn't say demeaning, but they would speak down and they don't believe in mental illness, blah, blah, blah. What is it really? And I was like, okay, originally I'd say go watch that. Yeah. And then later on, uh, Silver Lines Playbook with uh, Bradley Cooper having yes. mental illness. I thought that's their depiction of how mental illness can be a situation where they're overwhelmed by the stimuli and they don't know how to make the right choice and they hear a thousand voices going at them. Films like this, I will always champion because it's just like watching the best years of our lives where we see something, a man losing both hands and we see how he lives. Yeah, That's all you want from film is to teach me how someone else lives. <clears throat> So I can see and I can empathize or I can I can learn from it. This film, if you as Jeff said, if you've not seen it, you need to treat yourself to it. It is emotional. It is horrific of places to watch. It's tense. Yeah. But I guarantee you it will it will stay with you for a long time. 
And, and yeah, before we move on to the next one real quick, uh, I just want to touch on the fact that, that, that it is, it is emotional. But one thing I like about this movie is it cleans up after itself. And what I mean by that is I like a movie that, that, that gets my heart going, gets my brain going, but doesn't do so much at a level where an hour and a half after the movie, I'm walking around going, Oh my God, you know, um, it, it, it gets you involved, but then at the end, you know, it, it like I said, it cleans up. You kind of walk out and you're like, I mean, you, you obviously are affected by it, but it's not like you're distraught and, you know, need time to, to, uh, unwind or go watch, uh, you know, some, you have to go watch what is Ishtar to, to get, to get, the, <laughs> to get things. It, this is not Schindler's list in that it stays with you for about you three go. weeks and you're going, Oh my God, why do I even live in this world? Right. Right. But it, but it is a haunting film. Yes. It's, it's beautiful. It's funny in places, and you'll be shocked by how many people are in it that you kind of go, "Oh, yeah. Danny DeVito, that guy, the yeah. guy from Hills Have Eyes, is in it." That horror film, he's oh, yeah, in there. That's right. Yeah. All right. That's thirty uh, third place. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, nineteen seventy five. Let's move up. We have two left. Nineteen seventy four, in the thirty second spot, The Godfather, Part Two. This would be Francis Ford Coppola's follow-up to his Godfather Part 1, and this film holds the distinction of being the only sequel to ever win Best Picture and the the original one Best Picture 2. And along, so, the, along those lines, real quick, I'll go ahead and throw this out. Mm-hmm. Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro are the only two actors ever to win separate Oscars for playing the same character. That's right. And to that point, this is the telling of the early life and career of Vito Corleone in the 1920s New York that we see both him as a young person and then we see his son Michael as he expands and tightens his grips on the family's crime syndicate. This film is considered to actually be a better film than Godfather 1. Now Godfather 1 willing to upon this list higher, I believe. Yes, and I agree with that statement 100%. It the thing about it that is so hard to pull off and he Coppola pulls it off so masterfully is this idea that he's pinging from Vito when he comes to America and Michael as he loses the family essentially he, he you know Michael starts in the first film as a character who his father doesn't want him to be a part of it we already know that his dad didn't want him to be a part of it now we're going to see his dad and how he came here and how he essentially lost himself to crime but Vito Corleone was actually a pretty good guy according to this film and he made sure that Michael was pushed aside. He wanted to study the law. He wanted to become something else. But Michael falls into it. So it's this beautiful cross trajectory of, of life. One falling, one climbing. But we know that in the middle, they both fall apart, essentially. Right. It is so masterfully done. It is so heartbreaking at places when we watch the family that Vito built crumble. Um I know that Jeff went on, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, to watch part three, which I, I kind of <laughs> wish you hadn't. Um, I, I think I said to Jeff, it, it's a good film with some great moments, but it's nowhere near the greatness of these first two. If you've not, if you thought, oh, I don't really want to give up uh, all that time to watch a crime movie, you're missing out. Yes, these are long films of three hours. This is three hours and 22 minutes. 
but I'm telling you those first two films. Wow. And this is, this is top notch. I, I, you know, and one of the reasons why I like this better than the original is Brando it was such a big personality. And as we're kind of continuing the conversation about before Jack and after Jack, one of the things about Godfather is it's obviously a movie about a crime family mm-hmm. and it's acted beautifully and shot wonderfully. Um, but one of the things I really liked about Godfather two, and for those kind of listeners that have not seen either one of those, I kind of like Godfather two. Cause you, you really don't have to see the first one. No, you don't. Um, I, cause it's been a long time since I've seen the Godfather. So watching the Godfather two for this project, this project, you know, I was, you know, I was shocked, um, that it, I, I didn't feel like I was missing anything. First of all, uh, watching it, I thought I had seen this movie, but I don't remember any of it. So, um, if I did, it, it, it definitely, um, it may have been in parts and I hadn't been paying attention, but this tells a better story to me and, and has some wonderful pacing in it. Um, and De Niro, man, he does such a great job, um, of bringing a kindness, a kind ruthlessness to mm-hmm. a character. And I know those are opposing words and I'm not saying them to be clever, but that's really my best way I, I can describe the character that is born and, and, and represented in that, in that film, because, um, I think it's only somebody like him that could really, um, deliver it. Well, it's funny that we have this performance after we have Jack Nicholson and One Flew the Cuckoo's Nest, because you can make the argument that De Niro became more of a stereotype at some point in his career than he was early. You look at, he had done Mean Streets before this, which if, if you've ever seen Mean Streets, you know that it's, he's this almost crazed criminal, and here he's very smooth. Mm-hmm. And it's just if you do allow it to be seen with Godfather one, it's this beautiful evolution of, you know, it's very unique, his own approach to it, but you can kind of see how he became the Brando character in the end. Right. Um, There, there are a few masterclasses in watching a director work also better than the Godfather part two. You, the scenes where he's uh, De Niro's, running along to try to assassinate someone mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are just beautifully constructed film. They, you, the, the, the images are telling you what you need to know. And they're not only are they telling you what you need to know, but he's taking a moment to allow his frame to dip and see the surroundings so that you never forget what's going on when it is. He uses a bit of a deeper sepia tone on some of the, the, the flashbacks simply so we're never confused by it. Right. But I God, I, and Jeff, I'm gonna have to go watch this film today. I, I would highly recommend it because it was a great journey, um, and, and just well done. I think if I had to sum it up, um, I just think it was it was a movie without feeling like it's a movie. Um, kind of like Godfather, you know that you're you're just like, oh, it's Brando, it's 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 acting, it's you know, right. and this was done so well. You know, they say the best. Um, uh, magic tricks or or, or, or or people that are really skilled at indiv- individual um, sports or uh, you know physical type of stuff that if they can make it look effortless that that means that they are a true master of it and I think that's what's represented well in this movie is that there are so many things done right you just don't even see it you, it's just right. it's just there um, I do have one interesting note um, 
During the movie, there are several scenes where very predominantly ADT, the home security uh, company, has mm-hmm. stickers. And I got all giggly and excited because I I was I was gonna be the one that brought down Fran- Francis Ford Coppola, you know. I get, and I started daydreaming. It was only a year ago that I noticed there was an AD, ATD st- or AD. Jeez, Jeff, get it right. ADT sticker in the window, and obviously that company was not around back then. And and I'm reading about myself on Facebook and all this stuff. And so just before I proclaimed myself as taking the man down, I went and did an internet search and found out that ADT has been around since 1874. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But how interesting. And maybe when we're hanging out, I'll show you the individual scenes, but they are very predominantly displayed. Mm. And I'm wondering, you know, maybe how, or what the backstory on that is, you know, I would be interested to, to know that. I will, I will tell you that if you don't own the Blu-rays of The Godfather, you should go buy them because the supplemental materials, too, if you love those first two films, just knowing how they shot it, hearing Coppola talk about it, wow. Done and done. I definitely will do that. Definitely will do that. All right, that's uh, 1974. That's The Godfather Part Two, holding the 32nd spot. Final film. We're almost there, folks. This movie came out in 1941. It holds the 31st spot. According to IMDb, um, they wanted to change the title. And the one that was the most seriously considered was uh, uh, The Gent from Frisco. And luckily, they did not choose that. Uh, They decided to go with the Maltese Falcon. Todd, talk to us about it. All right, this is John Huston's adaptation of a Dashiell Hammett novel. It tells the story of a private detective who takes on a case that involves him with three eccentric criminals, a gorgeous liar, and their quest for a priceless statuette. Um, you know, there are few genres that I love more than film noir. And film noir, uh, the, the term film noir comes from the French, who it's dark film. And the reason they call it that is that very, very now stereotypical look that you see in detective films where it's the high contrast shadows, um, light may be coming through blinds, so we see the slashes on their face. I love that look. I, I grew up romanticizing that. That's even why, like with the modern day film noir of uh, Ellie Confidential, I love that film because it's so beautifully done. Maltese Falcon is a very well done film. Um, where they're chasing after, you know, basically the biggest red herring in the whole world. It really, it just has nothing to do with anything. But it's it, film noir becomes about the interactions and what people will do to, to to deceive one another, and that's why it has all the tropes of the the beautiful uh, liar. Is it? I'm sorry, gorgeous liar is what IMDb calls her, who basically will use him and and try to twist him. And it has to be the detective who either falls prey to that or somehow sees above it and sees the empty shell casings of life, you know, that kind of thing. This is a good film. And I know that it's so influential in the film noir categories. I, I, I don't love it. I won't rush out and watch it. But it's a good film. And it does have a famous quote in it that this is the stuff dreams are made of. If you've ever heard that, that this is one of the places that that I, I think that may even be a partial quote to Shakespeare 
but it became popular because of the end of this film. Um, I can actually find that out because it's on here. And the, and the last point that I've got in there before I kind of get into my view, um, did I read something correctly about a seven-minute shot? I don't know. 40, so 41, this would have been the same year as Citizen Kane. So there are famous what they call one one take, you know, uh, master shots. Right. And I don't know about this one. I know that Orson Welles did it later with Touch of Evil. There have been uh, Scorsese's done it. Paul Thomas Anderson did it. Boogie Nights. I don't know in this one. I really don't. I thought I saw something on IMDb, and then kind listener, I apologize. I have uh, I, I didn't I didn't write the correct notes down, but um, um, I'm trying to look that up too while we talk. Yeah, it's uh, something. There there's something to do it, and there was a uh, there's a I thought a seven minute scene in here that was kind of shot, um, but now that. Uh, my eyes and ability to scan <laughs> my screen is failing. Um, you know, we will uh, um, we'll forego that unless Todd finds it really quickly. Um, the stuff that made her, the dreams are made of. Uh, I think it's voted like it's in the high numbers of the most some of the most memorable lines ever uh, yeah. mentioned in a film. Um, I did like this film. This was the last film I watched, so I. I was a little tired um a lot of dialogue uh but beautifully set up one of the interesting things i read on imdb is that the uh there were two uh falcons that were made out of lead mm -hmm. uh, they're worth million uh millions or right around a million a piece um and one of them has a big dent in it because um bogart dropped it accidentally in a scene um and to this day they're uh uh, considered a a very uh, worthy having uh, of trivia or set piece uh, that's out there. And I thought that was interesting that they were m made um, uh, from lead, and and yet just because of the film have so much worth. Um, this again to me, the movie was a little cookie cutter, um, but I think these type of film noir have a certain amount of rules and boundaries that are set up that they, they've got to follow. Um, but overall, very satisfying. Um, I think I read something else that Bogart's like in like every scene, but like three. Um, so he rules this screen and rules every moment in the sense that in the writing, in the cinematography, uh, it's him with some people in a room. And that was one of the things I think my eye picked up on um, and wasn't necessarily 100% comfortable with. You know, I, I'm the type of person, too, when I'm, I'm watching a movie or something I'm enjoying, I'm kind of wondering what the other characters are doing or what's happening be, behind the scenes. Right. And uh, so, I mean, if, if, you like a, if you like a Bogart sandwich, uh, this one's got plenty of Bogart in it. So you're right. There is a, a as it put put it here the now famous seven minute take truly innovative in its day took two days to rehearse oh so, yeah there it is so they did it i I'm, I'm curious to go back and watch it i'm curious to see how much it covered so why that's why that's significant when you do long takes especially in that day if you're doing a long take and it's on a static shot in other words the camera does little movement the actors it's very stagey almost like you're watching a, a film stage play that's a that's a pretty safe way to do something because you're lighting it 
you're letting the, the camera roll and you're getting seven minutes in one take. The average film, you know, hopes to get a, a minute or two a day. So for them to get seven, suddenly you're way ahead of schedule. And that's, you know, going back to why Orson Welles did it for Touch of Evil. He was notorious for being behind schedule. And he said, fine, I'll do this really long take at the first of it. It's going to cover two blocks, blah, 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 blah. Well, suddenly they're days ahead of schedule. Hmm. So that's why you put those in. And they become artistic. So I'm curious to see what they did with this. I, at that time in 41, those cameras were ginormous. The the dollies would be big too. Uh, I If it's a set, I could see how they could go across. But now you know, you're talking about having to do a lot of lining to expose for a seven-minute take if it covers much real estate. So I'm curious about that. But then going to what you said about Bogart being in this, that was an intentional choice by uh, John Houston. And many of the shots are framed over his shoulder so you feel like you're him. That's right. So that you feel like you're the one investigating these people. Right. And so that was pretty groundbreaking for its time. Houston Houston's a smart director. You know, I I may have knocked this film to an extent. I may have knocked Treasure Sierra Madre, but the man was very, very smart. And, you know, later on he went on to do things like Pritzi's Honor that are just very economical in their approach to things. So he, he didn't always go with this little bit heavier handed approach. He has some great, great films in there. Now, I will say this. This is a, a film that we have to mark as significant because when we get to Chinatown, which I know is on the list, I, have you ever seen Chinatown? Uh, no, but I'll see it by the time we record next week. <laughs> is it next week's list? It is. Uh, next week cover 30 through 21, and it's at the 21st spot. I love that film. And when you watch it, number one, John Huston is in it. He does not direct it, but he's in it. Ah. And you will you will begin to see a lot of oh okay i now see how this influenced something that even came you know 30 years later fantastic hey we made it 31st spot <laughs> folks we 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 are are uh we're almost three quarters of the way through this list and uh I, i'm so thankful for all the listeners and especially you todd you know i think again kind of like i echoed on the last podcast it's like we agreed to do it but now i'm feeling the accomplishment <laughs> especially from seeing some of these films. So um, we promise we're going to get through them. I know we're, we're running long, but uh, you know, just, just enjoy. Um, I'll uh, any final words there, Todd, before we, we get out, you want to, you want to plug anything? You know, I'm, I, what I'm going to give you a final word on, I'm looking at this list and there's one film on here I've never seen. And that is all about Eve. I have kept my distance because of how much my sister loves it and tells me how great it is. I'm going to finally watch it. Me too. I'm do that before next one. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, that'll be a that'll be a movie that we that'll probably be one of the few that neither one of us has seen and we'll have to watch to prepare for for uh, next week. Yeah. Well, folks, 2 hours and 5 minutes have passed. It's another week that you've been hanging with Todd and I, the other kind radio. We are so thankful for your support, your reviews, your comments, your emails. Thank you so much. And if anything we said today uh, motivates you to send us an email, uh, we would love to hear from you. Um, we're available at theotherkindradio.com. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward space, The Other Kind Radio. We're on Todd and I are on Twitter. Um, I think I've given the email addresses. Everybody knows where that is. Uh, so drop us a line. Let us know. All right. We're going to get you out of here. I'm going to get out of here. We'll see you next week. 
We are The Other Kind Radio. Thanks for listening. The Other Kind Radio. Radio. The Other Kind Radio.